0: I don't see anyone ever thinking this would be a commercial success. It's got so, Ryan yeah. O'Neill, though,
1: guys! <laughs> Welcome to an episode of Cine Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks.
0: And I'm Thomas Horton.
1: And here on CineNation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. And this month, we are talking about the one and only... Stanley Kubrick and the films that he created during his career. So so Thomas, what have we talked about these past two episodes regarding Kubrick and his works?
0: Well, we talked about his background uh, as a photographer and then kind of coming up. And once he got started making films, kind of his obsession with moving the camera as much as possible, which I think we're going to see this week him kind of get back to his... Photographer roots. Um, we'll we'll discuss that a little bit more as we get in. But you know, those early films, he's he's doing these this crazy um handheld camera work. He's doing these insane dolly moves that pass through like multiple rooms. Um, and and then he's also doing very intensive lighting, very high contrast kind of film noir, German expressionism style lighting. And then we and then in week two we got into his his big studio phase with uh with uh Spartacus and all of that kind of went out the window. You 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 saw his style just kind of disappear to become the pretty stereotypical Sword and Sandal movie as as we discussed. And then kind of him take it back, get back into being somewhat independent, and start doing the things that he wants to do. And then you get uh Lolita and then with Doctor Strangelove, as we said last week is the first when you're watching chronologically dr strangelove is the first film of his that feels kubrickian whatever the term there's this term kubrickian that's come up to describe his movies people throw it around to try and describe when a movie tries to be like one of his i'm not entirely sure what exactly the definition of kubrickian <laughs> is maybe by the end of this month we'll be able to uh define that absolutely but but dr strangelove is the first one that just feels like it is from from a visual standpoint from a humor standpoint from the the themes that it's tackling from the way it's telling story it just feels like it's him putting his brain on display and that's what i think the rest of his career is going to come to to be as as we'll see this week
1: yeah strange love is very much this like transitional movie from point one or uh, part one to part two in a way like Mm -hmm. it's it's very much kind of the like I've done these other movies. I've done the whole like Hollywood, like trying to do what Hollywood wants me to. Do, it kind of feels like to let me do kind of something that I want to do. And with Strangelove, it's it's very much kind of a. I mean, a lot of people, I talked to a few people about this when, when kind of these past few weeks doing, doing this, and everyone's kind of like, yeah, I really only watched like Kubrick from like Strangelove on. I've never mm-hmm. really watched anything before Strangelove. Because a lot of, in a lot of people's minds, it's like *Strange Love* is that is the first one, and then *Onward* is the like everything else after that is very Kubrick. It's like I have very mm-hmm. f- few friends, or I have some friends like have still never seen *Pat's of Glory* because it's not in that period of what yeah. people talk about with Kubrick. But it's arguably one of his best movies. Um, so yeah, but I think today, as we get into this, where that's this is like when you see like him fully formed in that way strange love is that transitional period where like it still kind of has some hollywood vibes to it like it's it's kind of more of a comedy than really anything else he'll do or a traditional comedy i will say than what he will do say with his later films um and so this episode is very much gonna be about like him i think becoming fully formed as a director Mm -hmm. it's like the, the the techniques and everything i've been working on beforehand he kind of comes in, and I'm almost raw a little bit with, with Dr. Strange. And when it comes into this next film, which is 2001 space, Odyssey, it becomes very honed, very refined. And he very much perfects the, the, his voice that he's trying to do. He's trying to, to showcase, uh, in some way. And so that leads us into, uh, into 2001 space odyssey. So after releasing Dr. Strange love, in January 1964, Stanley began thinking about his next next project, and it's not for sure on when he began thinking about tackling a sci-fi film, but it, it in 64 it was on his mind, basically. Uh, like several of his projects before, Stanley was looking for a writing partner to help him crack a sci-fi story. He was advised by a friend to contact author Arthur C. Clarke, who had written several acclaimed sci-fi novels and stories. Kubrick would actually travel to New York City to meet with Clark on April 22nd, 1964. So really like only three months after Strange Love is released. Uh, he met him at a tiki bar in New York to discuss the possibilities hmm. of a project. At Trader Vic's is what it was. If you know Trader Vic's, it's... Yes. Yeah, it's where they're at. The, the,
0: the only existing Trader Vic's is in Atlanta. Still. Is it really? Yeah, the, it's, it's still open. Well, the gotta, one in Atlanta is still open. I
1: gotta come there. Mm-hmm. So... They meet, and they talked about kind of the possibility of working together. And Kubrick said he, want, he wanted a, the, sci- the project to be about man's relationship with the universe. And according to Clark, he believed Stanley was determined to create a work of art which would arouse the emotions of wonder, awe, and, uh, awe even if appropriate, terror. At the end of the day, however, Kubrick pretty much said, I want to create a really good sci-fi movie, is basically what he said to Clark. Mm -hmm. Uh, Clark would agree to work with Kubrick on the project and with some of this uh, there are kind of conflicting reports about how the writing happened a little bit so the initial plan was to write a novel together before writing the movie and Clark gave Stanley several of his short stories he'd already written to be a possible basis for for this possible sci-fi film. Kubrick uh, would decide upon a story called The Sentinel, which was a story about the discovery of an unknown artifact left by alien life on the moon's surface.
0: Mm-hmm. Very
1: much part two of this movie. Um, the deal would then begin to cherry pick from several of Clark's stories, combining both of their original ideas and the pre-existing material. When thinking ahead, they hoped to have the book be released with written by Arthur C. Clark and Stanley Kubrick, and then screenplay by Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clark essentially trading top billing. But in the end, only Clark would receive credit on the novel, even though both stories were written simultaneously, simultaneously and together uh, with both of them. Uh, This is where their conflicting reports come in. Many say that Clark and Kubrick had difficulties working together, which if anything, (laughs) you found out these past few parts makes sense. I can't Um, believe that. Yeah. While they were writing both the novel and film at the same time, the stories began to diverge. Where Clark would add more explanation in the book about certain mysteries, Kubrick would delete that in the screenplay, wanting the film to be more visual and less dialogue-heavy. Some report that Kubrick became frustrated with Clark and began offering the role of his collaborator to other writers, which they would eventually turn him down, kind of out of loyalty to the right to, to Clark and feeling it was wrong to kind of do that. Uh, however, other uh, however other reports kind of say that Kubrick and Clark always worked together. There was no kind of offer. Uh, but Kubrick was constantly asking Clark for more plot lines he could use in the film. Clark would agree to do so, but he wanted to be he wanted to be able to use the plot lines in later novels and short short stories. If Kubrick did not use them in the film, which Stanley reportedly refused, saying he was under contract and could not do that because they were his ideas now, because they were going to be for his movie. Uh, as they were writing, they began searching for a title for this unnamed. sci-fi picture uh because mgm was backing the film and they wanted to be shot in cinerama which was the big the new format Mm -hmm. they were doing kubrick and clark referred to the project as how the solar system was won in reference to (laughs) mgm's earlier cinerama production how the west was won uh in february of 1965 the title be announced as journey beyond the stars while other titles considers considered were universe tunnel to the stars and planet fall But Kubrick uh, would want to find something that would distance the film from all the kind of schlocky sci-fi like monster movies that had been released in the past decade. So in April of 65, Kubrick would come up with the title, 2001, A Space Odyssey. And while researching for 2001, Kubrick began doing – I mean, it was massive amounts of research. And he had already been known for attention to detail in his previous films. But 2001 was where it became known by almost everyone in the industry and with fans – that he was uh, a perfectionist when it came to that. He would read mm-hmm. countless books on science, watch numerous movies from previous sci-fi films to short documentaries on space, and talked with scientists and experts on space. Uh, one of the ones he talked to was famed astronomer Carl Sagan, who claims he inspired Kubrick to not use traditional aliens that had been portray- portrayed on film before in 2001. Kubrick initially intended for the aliens to be human-like even designing costumes and elements to make this a reality, wow! But really? he would soon decide upon the looming black monolith. Um, by the way, this that decision was made like very late in production. Apparently, some saying it didn't happen until post production of what the aliens would look like. Hmm. MGM would back the picture, giving him around six million dollars to make it in England. And I guess that means I ask this This "Is what's 2001: Space Odyssey about?" After all that setup. <laughs> what is 2001 a space odyssey about people have debated
0: that for for years decades um uh i guess it's about an expedition to jupiter (laughs) that's Uh, one
1: part (laughs) Uh, well
0: you've got you've got the opening in which uh, man's early ancestors the apes discover uh tools which then transitions us into space exploration which then turns into discovering this monolith, which is we could go way too deep into what the monolith <laughs> means, but it has something to do with human innovation. It appears yes to people anytime we've, we've crossed a major point in history. And so they've reached the moon, they've begun colonizing the moon and they find the monolith and it points them towards Jupiter. So then we jump to a mission as it is about to arrive in, at Jupiter and investigate you know, this, this signal that's, that sent them there, but, but something, something has gone wrong with Hal, which is if you've never seen 2001 a Space Odyssey, that's probably what you think the yep. entire movie is about, yeah. but it's not.
1: Yeah. Hal, Hal's not, I mean, he's in there a while, but in comparison, to the whole movie, he's not in there that much. Yeah, it's, it's probably, a, it's
0: probably about a, a
1: third less than a, I'd say yeah. less than a third, a little yeah. bit more than a quarter, but less yeah. than a third. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's three kind of stories, but the thing is, is that, the bulk of the movie is the third story.
0: Mm -hmm. Like I'd
1: say probably like 88, but probably like an hour and a half of the movie hour and 20 is just the third story. Mm -hmm. And the other ones are kind of the, I think the, the uh, Donna man is one of the shorter ones uh, too. But yeah, it's very much this, like what happens when, when man evolves in some way, when this new piece of information to new piece of maybe technology comes into play and you're essentially tracking the hist- history of man from from ape to star child essentially mm-hmm. is kind of what it is um and with all the big like thematic elements of human like uh, evolution and technology and ai and, and alien life forms uh, the the plot is just like yeah apes get a bone they <laughs> apes get a tool realize what they can do with it and then humans find a tool later on, and then they're trying to hone, uh, like, kind of hone that ability to use it in some way. It's like it's mm. it's not a lot plot wise. It's really just everything's at a distance. This is when like Kubrick begins to do. Everything feels cold in some mm. way, and you're watching kind of at a distance. Is when two, it starts to happen, two thousand one. Um, but but yeah, it's it's a movie that is so. It's like I feel so pretentious when trying to talk about two thousand one space Odyssey <laughs> sometimes, but like it's like it, it very much is like nothing looked or felt like this before this really, essentially, right. yeah. Um,
0: and it still looks incredible.
1: Incredible. <laughs> like when I was, I texted, uh, I texted Mark, my my kind of cinematographer buddy. I was just like, man, when you watch this, these shots are just insane. Like whatever mm-hmm. he's doing. And it's like just simple shots. Like I, I find when when he's shooting them like watch the, the screen uh and the spaceship in the third story. I'm just like mm-hmm. I've never seen a shot just like the way it's perfectly comp like composed, the angle of it's amazing, the way you see the screen and the per and like say Gary Lockwood or whoever is in it, like it's just somewhat kind of insane of just how well it's done. Mm-hmm. Um and and yeah so i guess it leads to like what what are some favorite scenes you have in this movie which i think i think like it can be kind of hard to do because everything's so mm-hmm. non-dialogue yeah uh-huh. i mean
0: is, if if i can kind of turn that into what aspects of this movie yeah. i really like is something interesting that i did not know about kubrick before this series was you know between watching uh uh killer's kiss and learning that one of his wives was a ballerina some some people have called this a space ballet
1: yeah
0: and that's so much of so much of this movie is just exploring movement in space set to classical music often but whether it's you know we get this kind of extended sequence uh when when we're opening the second part about like what what is it like to be a flight attendant on yeah. a, a flight in zero gravity like you know he, he gives you a good 10 minutes yeah. on 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 how this flight attendant gets around mm-hmm. um you know we get the uh the kind of famous you know how do you work out on a spaceship in the third segment yeah. where you've got gary kind of running yeah, um the rotating, running around yeah. the, the, the 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 spaceship yeah um and then of course you've got all these kind of docking sequences where we're just watching these these spaceships go or even when he's piloting the pod yeah. through space he's so fascinated and and it's not this time a lot of this movie is not about camera movement it's about mm-hmm. a, a people's movement or a spaceships movement and just setting the camera up and letting it all happen in camera but yeah so much of this movie is just and, it, and it's also interesting i'm sure that, that carl sagan was you know involved at all because that does kind of feel like that just this like complete fascination with like the physics of space feels like i'm sure kubrick had a lot of questions for sagan about that but yeah so and it's and so ultimately there i mean obviously there are parts that are really chilling when the the score changes when when the monolith theme comes in and you're like oh wow (laughs) but but a lot of this film is like really relaxing yeah (laughs)
1: I mean, that's kind of, I mean, I, uh, I'll bring this up later, but like Maywack became kind of a stoner movie, like mm-hmm. in the 60s, because it's just like, it's very much like, um, you're kind of relaxed, and then, and then it gets crazy, and like when it gets the Stargate yeah. sequence or whatever.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Of course.
1: But yeah, no, I think you talk about the, uh, again just the detail of it all you talked about the flight attendant stuff he does that twice he has two sequences about just like being a flight attendant in space essentially Mm -hmm. yeah and it's fascinating And (laughs) one that i find just so fascinating is like it's the second one where like literally people are having conversations and just music is playing over it Mm -hmm. and like you hear no dialogue and it's just like it's like i wouldn't say it's a montage because it's not really the cutting's not a lot it's very much long shots, long held mm-hmm. shots. And you're just like watching these people live. It's like the, you had the one fly tent coming in with the food and then, and then he's asleep. And she so goes to the other fly tent and they chit chat for a little bit and give the food to her. And mm-hmm. then she, she goes back in and she walks around the cir- like the kind of mm-hmm. circle. It's like, it's just like he's, he's, he's fascinated by every little detail of what this possible life could be like. Yeah, and then and then it leads into like this this it's the spaceship the the the, the basically a, a, an astronaut's journey in a way. It's just so yeah. kind of how different how different every story of the film is, but how it's still part of a collective piece.
0: Yeah, and then uh, you know the third one, like we said, it it, it gets the most attention because yes. it is kind of the longest, but it you know, it's also kind of the most plot driven. Yes. There is kind of this. In the in the second one there is kind of this mystery of like what's going on on the surface of the moon what's yeah. this guy going to to find out but the the third one has a clear cut protagonist and antagonist yes. and and rising and falling action and whatnot but you know as 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 cold as as we say Kubrick has become in this era it's <laughs> i still get really sad when hal dies i was gonna say the
1: same <laughs> exact thing I it's gonna... it's
0: done so well and you don't you don't care about any of those people you're like wow hal just killed like five people so i shouldn't feel bad mm-hmm. but when he's talking about like basically being born and yeah. he's like he taught me a song uh, would you like to hear it
1: days oh man it, like, i i didn't really hit me until this time i was like wow, well, this is kind of sad and like it kind of breaks down like you gotta think about it like He's nine years old, I think is what kind of shows. Like he's like he was mm. he would so he's like a child. Mm. And then when you kind of hear that, you're like, okay, how's a kid? And like so he's actively doing things that like a kid would do. Mm. It's like it's like it's like a kid keeping keep away or something. Where mm-hmm. it's like, yeah. No, no, no guys, you can't do that. I know this is mine. That's what it kind of feels like. And yeah, it's like the way it's the prolonged, like droning of Hal's voice going from like just deeper and deeper but yeah the Daisy song specifically is just almost haunting mm-hmm. and I think initially it was supposed to be more of a it was supposed to be like IBM like an IBM machine or something like it was sponsored mm-hmm. by IBM and they didn't do it because because I think when 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 Kubrick referred to as like a psychopath, ibm was like yeah we're not doing that um
0: (laughs) that 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 raises a question does this movie have the blade runner curse
1: in what way and like you
0: know they they talk about the every like product that was featured in blade runner to be in the future is is defunct i know he's flying pan am to get to the to get to the moon yes there's a there's a howard johnson's on the space station which I'm, i think howard Johnson is like still around but like barely not,
1: not as big as it once was but yes
0: and then i'm pretty sure when he calls home on the on the video phone to his daughter i'm pretty sure the bell south logo pops up which bell oh, south is bell long, south, long
1: gone, gone yes uh, trust me i know uh <laughs> a family member has had that as a email address. I, I get it. Um, yeah. There was a few. Oh gosh. What was the ones? Cause he basically added in a bunch of those. I
0: think there is another. Cause he's at one point he's on like Let's the see. Howard Johnson wing of the space station. And yeah. then he goes to like the Hilton when he goes to like the, the business meeting he's he's on the hilton wing so yeah. uh, you know obviously hilton's still around but i just thought when he when he was flying pan am and then he got off and there was a howard johnson's like right behind him yeah, I was you're like, I like, oh this is just like blade runner
1: yeah it's like let's see what it was pan am ibm bell pick bell picture phone mm. which is the Bell bell american express card hilton howard johnson's general motors rca whirlpool you see at one point so, but yeah, so but yeah, pan Am- It's always fun because Pam's always what pops up in all these movies of that period, and like yeah, because it exists. was so
0: dominant yeah. and then just completely disappeared.
1: It was the AOL of the time, basically. It was just like everyone has AOL now, no one uses AOL. <laughs> um, but yeah, but but the thing with say Blade Runner, it's like what it does I guess it adds a sense of like um, like uh, like society in the future. It's like we're still obsessed with like product placement or not, pro- mm-hmm. but uh, uh, with brands essentially um but yeah with how i like how's lines are actually so funny in in the the like the latter part at one point he's just like when he's talking to uh um dave dave he's talking to dave and he's just like take a stress pill (laughs) think things over like it's it's very just like i find funny it's just like it's it's
0: yeah when he when he's when he's head when he knows what he's doing and he's kind of helpless to stop him at that point and he's like dave i must ask you to stop this yeah stop
1: this dave don't do this dave take a stress pill dave think things over but yeah so so let's get into kind of the the visuals of this movie too it's like i mean start the stargate sequence with the kaleidoscope of colors is just Mm -hmm. watching it on a tv to watching it on a on a (laughs) screen or to to a a theater screen it's still jaw-dropping like no matter what screen you're watching on it's still just like how do you do this without like cgi or even like the because they're, they're everything they're doing in this movie is in camera that's the whole thing mm-hmm. everything they're doing is in camera there's really not a lot of adding in post or whatever it's like it's all done on the day in camera it, it and it's it's insane to see um and that kaleidoscope, the voyage through time and space, is is really just. I, I mean, it's it's it's. I said it's jaw dropping. It's fascinating and just like, I could see being a stoner who like gets high, and you get to that moment, you're like, oh my god, this is the greatest moment of my life. <laughs> but yeah, but I, I, what's funny with this too is like, I feel like with 2001, it's so odd and why it's so. I don't know how to put this it's like none of the actors who are in this movie like are really recognizable for the most part in terms of, like mainstream mm-hmm. stuff it's like yeah um like Kier uh delay who plays david uh, dave he's in like black christmas or david and lisa he's 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 not in a lot of major things he's about to be in the halo mm-hmm. halo show oh Wow, or was in the halo show so he's hey, not in a lot so like you don't really see him in really anything else gary lockwood who plays the doctor um or who plays one of the one of the astronauts like he's in some star trek stuff and a few other things well, a lot of tv stuff a lot of these guys are like did tv for the most part not a mm. lot of films. so like it's just interesting kind of seeing all these people are like it, it's it's so it feels separate from everything else in his filmography in a way because of the cast
0: it's yeah, like if you look yeah. at
1: all everything after this you have kind of a star or people who are recognizable if it's like matthew modine and Full Metal jacket but like here it's like i don't really know anyone in this movie outside of this movie so it's very much everything yeah. lives within this world essentially is what i mean mm-hmm. um which is which is uh interesting.
0: So something I think we should note mm-hmm. this episode, because it's really when it becomes obvious, but is Kubrick's use of of classical music yes. and of using his fondness of using the same song kind of over and over again. Um, he, he does kind of go between a couple of different kind of classical pieces in this one, but you have Swan Lake, you've got a couple other really uh you know, and then obviously also Spock Zarathustra, the Yeah what's kind of become known now as the space odyssey theme yeah. also um, also
1: elvis presley's intro for his concerts after this movie by the way that's how he came oh. out. he came out to that every concert after this movie so i, don't, I guess he really loved this movie i don't know <laughs> um yeah. but
0: um i was i was thinking about it when when out because it's very apparent through this whole block of, of these three movies this week and i was like well is did he really just pick it up with Two thousand one, Space Odyssey, because he continues to do it throughout mm-hmm. his career. We, you know, we've talked about that in our um, Eyes Wide Shut episode, but I think th- the real beginning of it is Doctor Strange Love with the um, when Johnny comes marching home again. And every single time we cut to the bomber, uh-huh. it plays when Johnny comes marching home again. Every single time, and that's how he's just kind of like, all right, we're back in this plot line, and and. That's something that you know he he always does. It. We'll we'll talk about it in Eyes Wide Shut. It's like that one classical piece, and like anytime things get weird, it just like hits. You know, <laughs> it's just um, and and it'll definitely come up in in Barry Lyndon. But um, but yeah, so. I think I think he really first started doing it in Doctor Strange Love with that one.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to bring that up. Yeah, because it's it becomes very like because he he didn't really love doing like score after after strange love in terms of like or after this specifically too it's like like developing a new score it's like you're not seeing stanley higher we didn't didn't talk about
0: this we didn't talk about this during spartacus i hated the spartacus score (laughs) it was like the same three notes it was like and like just constantly over and over and over again I was like, (laughs) oh.
1: how is this on the afi top 100 at one point i think it still (laughs) might be actually i'm not sure if it still is but at one point it was i don't know which list it was but yeah it, it's, it's it's yeah not to hate on spartacus and episodes not being talked about but yeah i agree with you <laughs> um but no yeah it's everything yeah it's it's he perfects everything here it's like mm-hmm. strange love feels like that transitional piece to get to this or whatever it's like it's it's like you need you need revolver to get to sergeant pepper or something like, that, like very basic beatles reference but like you need kind of that early beginning to get to what people would consider the masterpiece or whatever. That's uh, almost otherworldly. Um, so production for the film began December 29th, 1965 at Sheppard and Studios in England to shoot the crater excavation scene where they find the monolith of the moon. Uh, mm-hmm. The production would then quickly move to MGM Studios uh, in, in England where it seems the rest of the movie or at least most of the film was shot. Everything was done on a soundstage except some part of the dawn of man when he's when the ape is using the bone to smash the the skulls the skull basically when he's practicing using it as a weapon or a tool um now when talking about the technical side of 2001 we could spend an entire podcast episode just relaying the information on how they made everything uh because there are literal there are literally multiple books on that exact thing but i'll just cover a few a few with this movie uh, the biggest disgust in this film, the film film's third story, when the astronauts are in the spaceship with the rotating set, uh, basically, in order to capture what was happening in the set without moving the camera, they created a Ferris wheel like set, so the camera could be stationary and the set and the actors could move around it. When when it came to shooting scenes, the actors are on the opposite sides of the wheel. They would strap usually Gary Lockwood in a chair. While delay would move to move around the set essentially as the set <laughs> moved around, uh, it seems the most dangerous effect that occurred on set, however, was when stuntman Bill Weston attempted uh the stunt when the astronaut is floating, Gary Lockwood's character is floating out into space. Uh, mm-hmm. apparently, they did not poke holes in his spacesuit for when he was spinning around in space, and while even though he wasn't actually in space, but while oxygen was being pumped into his suit so he could breathe there was no place for carbon dioxide to go out. No, so it no. was building up in his suit, causing him to feel lightheaded and almost pass out. According to Weston, someone told Kubrick they needed to pull him back in and stop the stunt, which according to Weston, Kubrick replied, <laughs> they had just started and they said t- they should leave him up there to get the shot. Uh, Weston would soon pass out. And after coming back to, he began looking for Kubrick who allegedly fled the set uh, either feeling bad or afraid Weston was going to beat him up. And Weston said that was his plan. <laughs> I don't know what happened there after that. Uh, production for the actors would wrap in September of 1967. But Kubrick would continue to work on the special effects for the film until March 1968. The last sequence shot with any actors would be the film's first sequence, which is the Donna Man sequence. While working on the visual effects of the film, Kubrick would receive help from several artists, including a young artist by the name of Douglas, Trum- uh, Douglas Trumbull uh when prepping for the film kubrick had seen an animated film at the 1964 world's fair in new york called to the moon and beyond the company that made the film was called graphic films and trumbull worked there as an animator kubrick had hired graphic films to serve as like a visual consultant on the movie but would later fire them as pre-production went (laughs) on trumbull feeling like he had already worked a lot on this project found kubrick's home number and called him up asking to continue to work on the film which Kubrick allowed um, as production went on tr- Trumbull's responsibilities grew becoming a visual effects supervisor. And he helped develop the famous stargate sequence and the class of effect. Um, Trumbull would later do like things like uh, blade runner, some of star Trek, the tree of life was kind of his last big one. Hmm. Close encounters third kind. Um, he just, he just passed away February of this year at the age of 79 but just a, just kind of a master in terms of visual effects especially in camera visual effects so after going through several cuts of the film kubrick would have would have a finalized version which would serve as the premiere cut on april 3rd 1968 which was shown weird, it was a, it was like a three-city premiere in a way it was shown in new york la and washington dc um it doesn't. This doesn't deal with the film. Just a side piece of information in terms of historical context, the context in the world. Uh, it was released on April third, premiere wise. So, April fourth, the next day is when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. would be assassinated in Memphis. So, like a very, very kind of uh, volatile time in America at this point. Uh, but, but back to the movie. According to the New Yorker article, 2001: A Space Odyssey, what it means and how it was made. The premiere was disastrous to say the least. Uh, apparently, a sixth of the film's audience walked out of the movie as it was going on, including several wow. several executives for MGM who was releasing the movie. Uh, many of the others who stayed would boo throughout the entire movie.
0: <laughs> Imagine being like, you know what? I'm not going to get up and go. I'm going to stay I'm just gonna and boo I'm, this movie. I'm going to let I'm everyone know cheer. what I think about this. Yeah.
1: Uh, Kubrick was apparently running back and forth between the projection booth and his front row seat, making sure that the movie was in focus. The focus was correct. Uh, and his co-writer, Arthur C. Clark, was allegedly in tears by intermission uh, in the lobby. Uh, according to Kubrick's wife, uh, Christiani, the premiere's after party was a room full of drinks and men and tension was her quote. Uh one funny one funny story for, to me from the LA premiere was that famed actor Rock Hudson walked out of the movie apparently saying to someone, What is this bullshit? Um <laughs> the premiere cut was two hours and forty one minutes. And because of the kind of response to it, Kubrick would cut 20 minutes out of the movie uh before it moved to multiple cities. Um one of the big scenes that I was cut out was before the premiere or after but there was a 10 minute black and white sequence at the beginning of the movie where they were like, it's like documentary style of like scientists explaining space. Oh, weird. Yeah. It, it, and like, you're like, that would totally take away from the beginning of like the dawn of man sequence. Yeah. Um, when the film was released, it was met with, to put it kindly, a mixed reception. Almost all the New York critics hated the movie uh, with Pauline Kale calling it a monumentally unimaginative movie and andrew sarah said it was one of the grimmest films i've ever seen in my life
0: <laughs> i think you could call it a lot of things but i don't know that <laughs> unimaginative is I one agree. of three
1: i think she he just get he got all the toys to do what do, do he wanted with, but didn't do anything like interesting uh <laughs> but chicago critic roger ebert gave the film four out of four stars saying it succeeds magnificently on a cosmic scale in the film's first nine weeks it would run only 22 locations Grossing only $2 million, which was well below the film's budget, which had ballooned from $6 million to $10.5 million. This this run, this kind of nine-week run, was part of the studio's intended 70-millimeter roadshow experience that was hitting all the major cities at the time. However, somewhere along the way, the studio began to realize that stoners loved this movie. (laughs) They would quickly change the tagline to 2001, The Ultimate Trip uh nope. there's apparently one story of a man spaced out on drugs running around a san francisco theater shouting it's god it's god during the stargate sequence um <laughs> and some believed if you timed it perfectly you could hit your high at its peak right when the stargate sequence started it's very much like wizard of oz and dark side of the moon type yeah thing. if you do this yeah, exactly um, it works perfectly it works perfectly man, man. Uh, by the end of the year, audiences not just stoners caught on to the allure of 2001, allowing the film to gross $21.9 million in its initial run. However, the film would not be profitable until the film's re-release in 1971. Uh, it was apparently $800,000 in the red when it when it finished its first run. Wow. As years went on, however, the film would eventually gross at least $146 million at the box office, some saying closer to $190 million at the box office. And it would eventually land four Oscar nominations in 1968 for Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Art Direction, and Best Visual Effects. The film would win for Best Visual Effects, making it the only competitive Oscar that Stanley Kubrick won. But there was a visual effects team, but Kubrick's the only one credited for visual effects on the <laughs> movie. This would cause a major rift between Kubrick and Douglas Trumbull with the possibility of legal action. I think Trumbull threatened to sue he was not credited for being a, the visual effects person. Uh, Trumbull and Kubrick would not speak for a decade, uh, but it seems they would re- reconcile later on because Trumbull made several statements uh, after Kubrick's passing. Uh, the hmm. movie would have a great impact on filmmakers everywhere. Steven Spielberg yeah. would call it the Big Bang for his generation, with George Lucas, James Cameron, Ridley Scott, Cindy Pollock, and countless others gone the record saying how influential it was to them and filmmaking. And the film's reputation has only grown since then.
0: Yeah. I feel like like so many filmmakers from that era who came up in the 70s yeah. talk about that movie the way filmmakers from the previous generations talk about Citizen Kane. Yeah. Where it was yeah. just like... I agree. You, you went to see it and you came out and said, I didn't know you could do that. Yeah. I didn't know you could make a movie that did that.
1: And the thing is with 2001, is like, how do you go from 2001 Space Odyssey to a clockwork orange is the kind of insane part because the it's again this is when you get the moment where every movie feels like a stanley kubrick movie but they're all vastly different
0: yeah yeah and i just made a movie that encompasses the entire (laughs) universe and now i'm gonna make one that focuses on one guy
1: (laughs) who's like a youth he's a youth in Mm -hmm. violence basically uh so after completing 2001 space odyssey kubrick wanted his next project to be made quickly and on a modest budget budget Mm. uh stanley had been given the novel of a clockwork orange a few years before from terry southern who co-wrote dr strangelove with him uh kubrick would put it aside because he was working on a napoleon bonaparte film
0: Mm, this will come
1: back up a lot of times
0: yes indeed (laughs)
1: So he didn't get around to reading it. And then a while later, his, his wife gave him the novel again, and he read it, becoming interested in it as a project. Now, A Clockwork Orange was released in 1962 as a novel written by Anthony Burgess. And he said he was inspired to write the novel after his wife had sad, sadly had been beaten by a group of drunken Americans during World War II in England who were who were stationed there. Uh, he also said after the war, he noticed when he returned to his hometown in England there was a, a rise of youth culture at the time in terms of mm-hmm. gangs and, and kind of juvenile delinquency at that point. Um, not long after the book was released, someone optioned the book for director Ken Russell to direct the film. That makes sense. And it was to star. Who was to star?
0: Uh, Ringo.
1: <laughs> you're, you're, cl- you're close. Not the Beatles, but the Rolling Stones oh, okay. with Mick Jagger playing Alex DeLarge was the mm. initial plan uh that would soon fall through due to british censors uh at the time not wanting to make the movie and just just somehow got lost in everything uh that would allow Kubrick to step in a few years later to direct the movie the script would end up being Kubrick's first screenplay where he was credited as the sole screenwriter uh will would later say that he used a lot of burgess's book but also added a number of scenes to it one of the biggest changes he made when he adapted the, the movie was he used the U.S. version of the novel and not the U.K. version of the novel. Now you're like, what's the big difference? Well, mm-hmm. in the U.S. version of the novel, I'm sorry, in the U.K. version of the novel, there is an extra chapter where the, ma- the main character of Alex has a redemption arc at the very end. The U.S. version mm. does not have that um oh, okay uh he would quickly cat oh yeah and so so in the end we'll go into what the movie's about in a, a second but in the end uh anthony burgess did not really like the movie as much because it didn't have that ending that was in his original novel and he didn't always blame kubrick he mostly blamed the u.s publishers
0: yeah i was about to say so how did yeah, how did it end up in the it, american version of the book But
1: yeah but not the but not the uk let's see what was the let's see it says burgess explains that when he first bought the bought the brought the book to an american publisher he was told that u.s audiences would never go for the final chapter in which <laughs> alex sees the error of his uh, error of his ways decides he has lost his taste for violence and resolves to turn his life around they're like americans won't like that they don't get that trust, uh, me. trust yeah, me americans
0: want <laughs> americans want more violence
1: uh and so when it came to doing the uh he came doing the, the movie version he had uh the, he kubrick went against the usual like hollywood practice of making a moral message movie in a way and him learning the error of his ways uh mm-hmm. and he kept it with the u.s version it's kind of funny to see the opposite usually you think the the u.s version would be like no he has to he has to come back around and see the error of his ways yeah and they're yeah, like, yeah no. exactly
0: the we, we think of i normally you think of the british kind of in their filmmaking or even television is being like, Yeah, no. Yeah, bleak. we can leave it more open ended. Yeah. We can yeah, we can go out on a downer.
1: And they're like, nah, in America we gotta do that. So seventies, man, weird time. We are sixties mm-hmm. and seventies, weird time. Um when when casting for the movie, uh, Kubrick would quickly cast Malcolm McDowell after seeing him in Lindsay Anderson's If, he said that if mm. McDowell he said that McDowell was his only choice for the role, and that if he could not do it, he would not have made the movie. Uh,
0: yeah, I, completely understandable. Yeah.
1: And so, with that, what is *A Clockwork Orange* about, Thomas? Uh,
0: so, *A Clockwork Orange* is about Alex, played by uh, Malcolm McDowell, who is the leader of a of a small band of they're his droogs. He's the leader, and, and they're his droogs, which are his his gang members. And 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 it's a kind of weird, futuristic um, version of London that's kind of patrolled by these like very stylized gang so every gang kind of has like their look and and alex is the leader of his and he ultimately kind of loses his his power over his group and is and is betrayed and arrested and is offered the chance to get out of jail if he subjects if he if he signs up for this experimental Mm -hmm. treatment to make him physically ill at the thought of of sex or violence yeah um and and he does and then you know kind of comes to find that it's not it's not all it's cracked up to be you know i'm starting starting to see this theme of it's not all it's cracked up to be (laughs) throughout kubrick i mean that's that's lolita you know it's like oh i finally i I got rid of the the mom i've got this girl and then it's like ah this wasn't this wasn't what i thought it was gonna be and and i think we're definitely going to in the next film after this one (laughs) I think we're definitely gonna gonna have think, somebody who finds that what he, what he expected isn't all it cracked up to think be even,
1: even next week it's the same thing with this particular yeah. movie too. <laughs> yep. it's like you have this vision of like oh this will be about this or whatever and then like oh no no, no no this is way worse again fascinating going from 2001 to this because this definitely feels like a more raw film oh yeah in comparison to 2001 like mm-hmm. it's still meticulous but in a very different way like, yeah
0: and it's a completely different it's meant to be somewhat futuristic but it's a completely different future yeah vision of the future than, than 2001 it's to like, it's like is. walking
1: into like when they walk into his like parents apartment complex and i'm like this looks like a rundown like it's like like this place has been raided and no one lives here and they're like mm-hmm. oh no people are just living here and like have yeah. have a pretty like i won't say like well-adjusted household but like like it's not like they're living in like the slums when you get into their apartment i mean actually get into their apartment it's a fairly nice spot um but yeah it's such a just a disturbing movie like it's a really Mm -hmm. disturbing movie um what 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 i find funny it's like again to talk about kind of kubrick's humor away or his meta-ness did you did you notice the record was in the record store when he go when when uh alex goes into the record store when he picks up the two uh women before going they had before the sex scene basically he's out. So. he's at the record store and he's in front of the cashier and there's just a big record for 2001 a space odyssey oh. right there in front of him and well, it's it just, just like when he had it's
0: just like when he had i am spartacus, I am spartacus in, uh, he's just like in lolita
1: in the previous work he did um mm-hmm. yeah i mean malcolm mcdowell is just insanely good in this movie like for for such a disturbing character so insanely good yeah he's
0: he's got this it's he's he's got this charisma to him in this movie that you know it makes him such a kind of it he's got this weird kind of boyish innocence that is what makes kind of evil alex so chilling you know he's 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 just having fun yeah And, and like he's he is gleeful in 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 this violence and everything and then it kind of it and and then once he's kind of undergone the treatment and everything it it makes him really endearing and it makes you feel really bad for him yeah. you know he's just <laughs> he's trying to stay chipper and in this world that is just beating him down
1: and then you have like the ending when he's like in the when he, going jumping forward like when he's like kind of like i feel like by the end like he's almost like i won't say gotten worse but you feel like there's more menace to him in a way like kind of at the end uh but i love the scene when he's like being fed the like the the food or whatever when he's like trying to eat it with i guess the the guy who's like giving him the pitch of what they're gonna do essentially Mm -hmm. and he's just like so like uh, how to put it like he's so um cocky is kind of the thing at the Mm -hmm. the end in a way of just like yep this is what's gonna happen um but yeah it's like and even like even before he goes into the um the experiment it's like i feel like he's actually being somewhat changed by like being in prison weirdly yeah like he's like helping because he's like the one running the slide projector or whatever for like the priest or everything he's Mm -hmm. he's like getting better and he just wants to have more he wants to get out i mean he's still a despicable character early on but like you see he's like somewhat changing um and yeah it's it's the kind of ups the ebbs and flows that character is somewhat fascinating of what he does 'Cause he's so just like despicable in that first part when it's when it's mm-hmm. the gang. When it's yeah. the gang and everything. But you know, he has like his own like set of rules is the odd thing. It's like when they're at the milk when they're at the milk bar or whatever, and the lady starts singing Beethoven and his friend makes fun of makes fun of it and he like hits him and it's like you gotta respect the arts, baby. Like it's yeah, Ludwig Van. Ludwig, Ludwig, Ludwig Van. I think I think I Kubrick's the cast him because like you can't or said you he can't teach someone to exude intelligence on screen and he felt that mcdowell did that hmm. uh as an actor
0: yeah um, i see that
1: but uh but yeah it's it's such a like and talking about the design of this movie talking about this kind of future like this this not so distant future like the world that he said like the apartment like the all it's very also very 70s of like the orange colored stuff and the yellow, like the very mm-hmm. like bright colors. Yeah, it's just and like an,
0: an exaggerated yes. uh, image of the time. Yeah. And everyone's got their hair kind of dyed these crazy colors. Yeah.
1: That's that, uh, that leads to the question. Are his parents good parents? <laughs> no. Okay. Okay. I just want to make sure.
0: Okay. C- Cause, no. cause uh, like, his
1: parents just felt like kind of like don't really care about him at all type thing. And like, mm-hmm. Once he moves out, we got to get a board border in here to to like pay the rent basically, and then like he's now their son. Um, uh, in terms of in terms of scenes, one scene I like though not parent not for parents but a parent like character is his like kind of parole officer or whoever. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. That guy's hilarious. He's yeah. hilarious. <laughs> scene when you're like i'm watching it and he walks by and there's just this like you see a a, a kind of a a glimpse of a guy just sitting on a bed you're like wait what was that and then like malcolm or or alex walks back and he's just like yes how are you alex where were you today why you not at school you feeling bad yes
0: (laughs) yeah for for anyone who who has not seen the film yeah it, it must also be stated that uh it's, it's, there's a lot of, uh, I believe it's Cockney slant rhyme. Yes. Uh, but just this, like, just, just gibberish for, for, used for many things. Yes. But yeah, I forget what he says, like, his, his, his gully something, yeah. Instead of, like, stomaching.
1: Yeah. gully has, yes, yes. You'll, be, you'll be just right by, by evening. Yes. He just constantly, it's, it's, oh man. And I could just be like, yeah, this is funny as hell. We got to keep doing this. Um, <laughs> But yeah, and but like so, and with all that, because so to go with kind of just the, the way he structured this and the way, and this is probably the book too, but with the journey of Alex, like you said, when he, when Alex goes from like getting out and having to go through and like he, he get, goes to the experiment, he's somewhat cured. And it's that kind of that third act for like everyone that he dealt with before going in, he has to deal with again. Yeah. And they're all like, just so upset with him. So if it's like you have the vagrant who sees him and basically like turns on him is like, you're the guy who like beat me up and like gets the, all the other kind of like vagrants to like, kind of go after him. And then you have when he runs into like basically his old buddies, this is also a very interesting kind of point of view uh, perspective His old buddies that were the violent ones are now cops. Yeah. And his, in his the old drugies. his old droogies who were violent as he was, are now police officers and mm-hmm. what what's the first thing they do we're like oh yeah let's beat the hell out of you and possibly kill you because they're like dr- trying to drown them basically yeah um and yeah and then he ends up meeting the the the, the kind of the character the the uh the writer whoever that he saw before that when he attacked and invaded the house the house of him and his wife um and just the way they kind of turn all these characters on him it's like mm-hmm. so you like wonder like it's it's an interesting statement on like, I don't know, with the kind of prison system of like, can you change? And if you do change, can you be forgiven for what your previous crimes are? And like, how do yeah. you go back and, into and, society after going through that?
0: And if you completely swear off violence and sex, can you function in the modern world at yeah. all? To you know, to to the sense where you're just like are are crippled at the at the notion of it. I mean we, we see how quickly he's just like because he he goes into these kind of violent convulsions, like he, heaving uh, anytime the idea is 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 brought to him and and it, and it really does it makes him like completely unable to function in modern society or in, in futuristic society. but yeah. same idea.
1: yeah uh, that 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 I had, I had a quick question about going with that when they do the experiment or the kind of the um, the test trial to show the audience like what it's like. What's mm. the casting notice for those two people? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you got that one guy who's just like insulting and basically beating him up on stage. Yeah, makes him lick his shoe. Yeah, and then you have like the the lady who's like just walking around nude. Like what's the what's the casting notice?
0: And then they they all give their bows and everybody yes. claps. For yeah, them, everyone right? claps.
1: And you're like what what is this show? What is this dinner, <laughs> what is this dinner theater I've walked into? Um, yeah, it's it's just I was just like that's a weird. I'm just saying as, as a, very producing standpoint, like what was, I mean, not, not the casting though is for like the movie of Kubrick, but like in that world, yeah, in, what's in that the world, casting because
0: yeah, yeah it's it set up that they are, are actors of some kind <laughs> of
1: some kind. It's like, they're just, they got done doing Shakespeare in the park and they came over and did this. I don't know. Um, sorry. That's my tangent on that, but yeah, it's just, yeah, I think, I think for such go from 2001 to this, that's so just like raw and rough around the edges and, Like you, like if you like did not know the kind of like lineage or the chronological order of Kubrick's films, you would not think this comes after 2001. No,
0: no, 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 not not at all. all. Not at all. Before I saw this movie, I I, I really didn't even see this until probably college, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's one that people speak of almost like it's a horror movie. Yeah. You know, you you do do hear the, the, the ultra violence. Yeah. Um, and it is shocking. the is. The beginning of it is, is is shocking, and 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 almost it's something kind of like two thousand one, where you have to put yourself in that mindset of like you haven't seen Star Wars. Like, what is it like to sit in this movie? Yeah, and and be like, oh my gosh, this is the first time I'm seeing anything like this. And and it's kind of the same way with this. It, it might we might be so desensitized to violence now that it, that it might not shock you as much, but. But to think back on it, it's, it's kind of insane to see it play out like that. Yeah. But, um, but it's also the way it's played with, with so much glee. Um, you know, there's obviously the singing in the rain rape sequence, yes. but then the, 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 the gang fight is, is almost, yeah. it's so choreographed. It's almost like a musical number, yeah. you know, it's almost like an update of the, of the West Side Story <laughs> um, brawl sequence. <laughs> Everyone's it's, tumbling it's and, and story,
1: Sarah, <laughs> <everyone's>, yeah
0: <laughs> everyone's tumbling and cartwheeling and yeah. everything. Um something we have not discussed since since the first episode, but is going to keep coming up is is uh narration.
1: Yeah. Good point to bring so up. Yes.
0: In, in this one, you know, we've we've had some previous films. We we discussed it in the killing as to whether it needed yeah narration and, or not. And, but and, this and one, Killer's
1: Kiss also has it too. Yeah. Killer's Kiss also has it.
0: Yeah, this one's got got kind of Alex's like first hand uh, yeah. as as he calls himself several times, he calls himself the narrator yeah. uh, several times. But um yeah, it, it it's I'm and I'm assuming that's taken from the books. It's taken from yeah, the book. it, yeah, it's yeah. it's 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 speaking to you the way that a narrator yeah. would in a book. And I um, and
1: I think 2001 at one point was supposed to have narration but they didn't do
0: mm, it. I could see that. Mm-hmm. I, I that just makes me think of the history of the world part 1. Parody of <laughs> yeah, yeah, um. But yeah, and then we will obviously have narration in our in our next film.
1: So when kind of going to the brief thing about the set life and and the reception of this movie, uh, actually true to his word, Kubrick would shoot a fairly quick film with a Clockwork Orange. It would actually be Kubrick's quickest film production, shooting from September 1970 to april 1971 of oh, it that's a quick production um <laughs> uh he had a more run-and-gun type approach shooting with wide-angle lenses to kind of capture more within the scene uh the biggest onset story uh comes from the scene when alex and his gang invade the home of his ri- writer and wife it's the rape scene uh they had apparently worked on that scene for four days never really getting it right and finally on one take kubrick told mcdowell to dance while they are kind of binding them the two the two characters uh him and his gang and mcdowell would begin to sing gene kelly's famous rendition of singing in the rain saying it was the only song that he could remember all the words to uh after the take <laughs> kubrick realized he wanted to use that and bought the rights to the song for like ten thousand dollars at the time years later when mcdowell would run into gene kelly at a party uh kelly would apparently walk away in disgust because of what mcdowell did to his popular song <laughs> and i'm like that sounds like gene kelly um But the bigger story for Clockwork Orange comes with its release. So the film would premiere on December 19th, 1971, New York City, just in time for Christmas, um, before opening in the UK in January and the US in February. The film would initially receive an X rating in the US before being re-edited to receive an R rating. So Hmm. the big controversy would arise in the UK when multiple incidents occurred supposedly inspired by the film. The first came in March of 1971, when a 14 year old boy was being tried for manslaughter after killing his classmate saying the film had great influence on him. Mm. Uh, There was another killing by a 16 year old boy who killed a vagrant similar to the opening scene in the film. And there was also a report of a gang of boys who assaulted, I apologize for this guy, graphic description of these crimes, but assaulting and raping a woman while singing, singing in the rain uh kubrick and his family would also begin receiving death threats due to the rise in copycat crimes after the film he would then pull the film in the uk in 1973 not allowing it to be shown in the uk it would not be shown in the uk again legally until 2000 a year after stanley's death really yes uh basically they because they, it became like kind of a big thing like all the video stores in the 90s they would actually put up signs saying no we don't have a clockwork orange because everyone <laughs> was asking for it and trying to get bootleg copies of it because it it gained this like hush hush tones basically about clockwork orange because of mm-hmm. what it caused in the uk society at the time but yeah so on top of all that the film would receive mixed reviews from critics uh, the New York Times would give it a, a positive review, but but Roger Ebert would give the film two stars, calling it an ide- ideological mess, and Pauline Kale would call Kubrick a bad pornographer. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like Pauline Kale. Uh, mm-hmm. The film, however, would be a box office success, grossing $41 million in the U.S., with a worldwide total of $114 million. Some attribute this to like the rise of youth culture in the world and kind of the anti establishment stuff. But it made 114 and the budget was only $1.3 million. So, definitely a lot lower than 10.5 of uh, yeah. 2001. Um, so, it would also receive four Oscar nominations in 1971 for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, and Best Editing. Surprisingly, Malcolm McDowell would not receive a nomination for his performance, which many were shocked by at the yeah. time
0: that's insane
1: oh let me see who was nominated that year because i looked this up and it was just like i was kind of like okay why didn't he get nominated again because <laughs> it's one of those it's what we were talking some friends and I were talking about this of like how like a lot of times oscar movies kind of live in a bubble and sometimes we think that way about more nowadays with the way we push the oscar race but i feel like also it was like that even back then so you mm-hmm. have um gene hackman french connection peter finch sunday bloody sunday Walter Matthau Koch, George C. E. Scott the hospital, uh Chaim Paul uh fiddler on the roof as as Tevya. Um I feel like Malcolm McDowell could squeeze into one of those slots. I'm yeah. I haven't seen most of the performances yeah, now made I, I don't it.
0: even know half of those. So
1: I'm judging based off just like continued discussion yeah. around the movie. Um I feel like that's that's kind of up there, man. It was it was a strong year. You got French Connection, Clockwork Orange, Last Picture Show, Fell on the Roof, but like also not nominated in Best Picture categories. You have like Clue was that year as well, which Jane Fonda wins for. But also McCabe McCabe and Mrs. Miller is that year. Carl Knowledge is that year. Very solid year. Summer Forty Two, mm-hmm. Conformist, really great year for film that year. So yeah, uh, the film would then gain a cult following over time even though it was already a success since initial release i think because of the controversy and everything that surrounds it uh it would also be seen as the kind of the last film and trend of movies that pushed the limits of violence in movies uh which would start with bonnie and clyde and then wild bunch but in 71 you'd see the release of this straw dogs and dirty harry and so Mm. you almost feel like it's like they push it fully and they're like we should dial this back a tad bit (laughs) uh after those three um, but after Clockwork Orange um, the, the movie would have a great impact on what Kubrick did next uh, due to the controversy that surrounded Clockwork Orange the film was shrouded his next film was shrouded in secrecy uh, initially Kubrick was continuing to work on the film based on Napoleon but per, the money for that would fall through he would go on to direct, develop a script based on the novel the luck of Barry Lyndon after the financial success of Clockwork Orange and Kubrick's reputation for receiving Oscar nominations and being seen as like this new auteur in the industry, Warner Brothers quickly invested $2.5 million in this project, but only on the condition that Kubrick would consider casting a major star in the role of Barry (laughs) Lyndon. Can you guess who the first option apparently was for Barry Lyndon? Rock Hudson. No, no, he's he's a little older. (laughs) 1970s young blonde redford redford apparently it was uh, it was between robert redford and ryan o'neill because he basically took the list of who's the top 10 base box office stars ryan o'neill was apparently number two at the time which is somewhat because mm-hmm. love story had just came out uh, yeah. and redford was kind of up there at that point too uh
0: yeah say ryan o'neill shout out to ryan o'neill for being one of those guys who okay. just like turned a like trash pop starring role into like art films for the next five years so <laughs> yeah
1: so what what i found about so odd about ryan O'Neal is like cause some people don't love him in this movie i like him in this movie but like i was like ryan O'Neal's an actor from the 1950s who just got put in movies in the 1970s mm-hmm. you know what i mean it's like when you look at his like just like his vibe and even with the movies that he was in a lot of them were period pieces because it's like mm-hmm. talking about look because sometimes people don't realize like how important The look of a character is for a movie. Sometimes you can just look too modern. Like you have Mm -hmm. too much of a modern feel. And something about Ryan O'Neill just feels like older in a way, like just of a different era. So you see him in Barry Lyndon or you see him in Paper Moon. And even to an extent, What's Up, Doc, because it's an older, like kind of like 1940. He's he's
0: meant to be a Cary Grant type. He's
1: meant to be a Cary Grant type or whatever uh, in that movie. But like, outside like the driver and a few other ones like which is great in the driver the more modern one it's very much like period pieces and somehow Mm -hmm. he just fits really nicely into that like niche in a way of like yeah i'm gonna be doing really well in period pieces but kubrick would cast ryan o'neill for this movie uh the only news that broke about this film that kubrick was to direct a movie and it was to star Ryan O'Neill, and people were like, "That's a very non-Stanley Kubrick move." <laughs> um, they also he also cast uh, uh, Marissa Berenson, who was also who was a uh, a year or a few years after her breakout role in Cabaret. She was nominated for like Golden Globe in Cabaret. Um, she said she only knew that the project was an 18th century period piece, and the only thing Kubrick told her was to stay out of the sun for months leading up to <laughs> the production, so because it was to be shot in Ireland and they need her to be pale um so what is barry Lyndon about thomas with all that
0: uh barry linden is is kind of an epic a, a lifetime epic yeah. of a of a young young irish rogue who through various mishaps and and misadventures works his way up to almost almost being british nobility <laughs> very, very nearly being british nobility yes but but just kind of the yeah misadventures uh, of his life that lead him to to this place
1: it's very much the anti Alexander Hamilton story is what I would say like it's hmm. it's a joke uh, but like Hamilton comes in it's very similar to that he rides up the ranks but doesn't quite get there and he kind of kind of falls back down and a big duel happens in his life so it's very similar to Barry Lyndon um yeah it's it's uh what I found fascinating when watching it this time I thought about the weird similarities to O'Clock for Carnage. For a movie. it's so different because let's like, be real clockwork orange the plot really gets in the hole hu- gets gets in the hole when, or comes into fruition when uh when he kills the the woman the the like the cat lady or whatever uh in clockwork orange and like that's mm-hmm. when everything changes and like he has to go to jail and he's sent away blah blah barry linden he kills the the uh, the general or whoever that that uh
0: the, uh, the british the british general,
1: captain yeah. yes uh uh john quinn i believe yeah captain john quinn uh when he kills him and he's sent away and like that's where the plot for his character kind of starts and i just thought it was an interesting kind of similarity between the two um mm-hmm. but yeah barry linden is a it is very much you're talking about like different almost it's it's very much a a rogue kind like, sort of a rogue story but like you're, it's different kind of adventures along the way with him mm-hmm. um it's a gorgeous film yes it might be one of the most beautifully shot films ever
0: yeah this is this is what i was talking about and you you start to see it and obviously we said you know in in 2001 he's he's a lot less focused on moving the camera and more about on movement Mm -hmm. within his frame so you start to see him kind of get back to his photographer background and and then in you've got that that shot in clockwork orange of them at the club where it's just everyone is like posing and the camera just backs backs up up. and just keeps getting wider and wider and it's and it's like you know it's like a a renaissance painting yeah and then this movie is just to, to steal a phrase every frame is a painting like <laughs> it's every scene is built around these shots that could be a a, a a work of art yeah and 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 so many times he just he'll, he'll open with these frames and you're like oh my god and then he just kind yeah. of lets it lets it kind of sit and and, and breathe in that frame and it's and it's so different from his you know his handheld stuff it's so different from his kind of the killing like dollying all over yeah. the place it, it's just he is composing the perfect frame every time mm-hmm. and then he's just kind of gonna let it let it play out there
1: yeah he, he looked a lot at uh william hogarth it was an english painter it was it was a lot of the realistic portraits is what he did um mm-hmm. and that's what he looked at for this but yeah I, what talking about like the time of the camera, it's like what i find fascinating too is a lot of it is like very stagnant very still and almost like he has the kind of like camera zooms a lot of times mm-hmm. too with these like very long camera zooms. Mm-hmm. But then he's will talking about just the choice of how to shoot a scene, he will then shoot certain scenes handheld in this movie. Oh yeah. So like some of the war stuff.
0: Yeah. Anytime yeah, there's yeah. Some a the fight.
1: Anytime that there's a kind of like the, the fist fight. The big fist fight between Ryan O'Neal and that big dude mm-hmm. is all like handheld and you're like, oh and then even when his when Lady Lyndon tries to kill herself he shoots it like handheld wide angle, like everything feels very chaotic. So there's this mm-hmm. break in that stillness when there's chaos introduced into the story of Barry Lyndon or the characters within the story. Right. Uh, he just, he knows when to how to like, because sometimes people are just like, I, like nowadays, I feel like sometimes with younger filmmakers, it's like, I just want to shoot handheld. And you're like, but why? Um, <laughs> or I want to shoot it this way. And the question is like, why do you do it? Or why do you go from handheld to this? And with a filmmaker like Kubrick, he very much knew when to go to handheld for the story purpose and when not to, and when to go on a tripod or when to do a zoom or when to do a dolly. He was very much aware of when to do certain things. And that was kind of key. That's what's key in being a great filmmaker is knowing when to change the, the, kind of structure or style or just do something different how to break Mm. it how to break up uh your your pattern um but also not completely not be completely jarring to what's going on
0: yeah yeah and we were we were also talking during the first episode when we talked about his kind of high contrast uh photography about how that would change once his he started working in color Mm. and i think this is one of those uh, you know his his later stuff like Eyes Wide Shut is very soft as well but this movie is so softly lit it's either sunlight or candlelight and that and that's it it's like yeah. no no high contrast Um yeah it's yeah like you, it is one of the most beautiful movies I think
1: yeah
0: never made it is it, it is yeah a work of art
1: 'cause that yeah it's it's just I mean when you watch this it's like I mean it's a long movie, it's like, it's a, it's mm-hmm. three hours and five minutes, but like it, it, it's and, and that was kind of we'll talk about that later, but that was a big critique of the movie is that like it felt like paintings a lot of times mm-hmm. and someone said it's a it's a gorgeous artistic thing, and some would be like this is boring, and I think this is a movie that like you really just have to be in the level of like the vibe of it because like yeah. i I feel like. His movies can be cold and distant, and this movie does have that. But there's also a weird like warmth to certain moments in this movie. I don't mm-hmm. like. It's just I, I don't know how to explain it. Um, because Lyndon is like Barry. Barry is this kind of um. It's a fascinating character because of just how it's like any character any actor would want to play this type of character. I feel yeah. like.
0: We're we're not we've we've followed him almost his entire life yeah. and we're never completely sure who he is or what who he, he is. wants. Yeah. Is he a con man? You know, does he care about any of the people in his life? Yeah. Is he only out for money? Is he only out for status? Um. Yeah. He's 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 very hard to pin down, yeah. and so those moments when you do get real emotions from him are are very affecting.
1: Yeah. Also, the moment when they're talking about like the, his son, um. Mm-hmm. For one, here's what here's I'll tell you guys: if you're in a period piece, never buy your kid a horse. <laughs> Just don't do it. It never ends up well with any <laughs> movie I've ever seen. Any movie or book that ends with like it's gone with the wind, like oh, I bought my kid a pony or a horse, mm-hmm. and like I don't know, that's what's gonna happen. But yeah, it's like uh, that moment's great. Um, oh, what I found funny is like I, I made a comment. I was like, I feel like like for me, it's so like kind of like still and kind of quiet. A, a lot of fights in this movie, you know, like yeah. weirdly. Like, if it's a fist fight, if it's war stuff, if it's him and uh, uh, Lord, uh, or it's Liam Vitale plays him, uh, but Lord, uh, Bullington, Bullington yeah. uh,
0: wow, well, that scene is that duel is some of that, let's talk about the duel because
1: that duel is like
0: moves so slowly, but so much tension, yeah, like. So well it's done.
1: Yeah, it's like so. Basically, so some of the story with this this because all, all this again all this kind of story is divided. It's in the divided in two parts. But like, there's a lot of like things throughout that you're following Barry. And for the back half of the movie, Barry is getting close to being like English nobility, and he's married into kind of a an a, a upper tier upper crust family. Uh, marries this woman named Lady Lyndon, and she already has a son uh Lord Bullingdon. Um mm-hmm. and there's all this like tension between the young son and Barry because or uh, between Barry Linden and the son because he sees this because he's old enough to be like, yo, I don't like this man. I don't want you to marry him. And he's he's very much attached to his mom. It's a very weird relationship between the two. And it's like he's so he hates his stepfather, and I don't think Lyndon's Barry Linden's very too fond of him either. And yeah. that just builds to, like, it's that moment, again, when Leon in the scene where, like, he's being, like, whipped as a child after, like, acting out. And he's just like, I will kill you one day if you touch mm-hmm. me again. And then you have that, that he he decides to finally do a, do a duel with his stepfather. And I think in that moment is when I think Barry has, like, changed the most, maybe. I feel like he's, like, seen the error of his ways by the point. Does that make sense? It's like, a young because yeah you I think the journey that Barry that Ryan O'Neill and Barry goes through at the beginning of the movie where he has that first duel where he is mm-hmm. the rebellious young young man who will do yeah the he's fights. he's hot headed he, he doesn't care he, he
0: he everyone has told him the reasons to not have this duel and it's yeah. just like I don't I don't care. I don't
1: care and now he's older and realizes kind of not how stupid but he realizes the the impact this has and he gives. Lord Bullington, when Lord Bullington's first shot goes off on accident,
0: mm-hmm. he
1: gives him an out and, like, cool, you screwed up. Now let's end this thing and I'm not going to shoot you because it's because, mm-hmm. like, I he's
0: obviously he's terrified learned. too. Yeah,
1: yeah, he's terrified, but he's like learned to not, he's he's learned so much in that in that in his life. He's not that young hothead anymore. He realized, like, this is someone's life you're playing with and this kid's young. I'm not going to end this kid's life and lord mm-hmm. Boyd just goes like i'm not satisfied and it's yeah. kind of like oh shit <laughs> yeah and it's like such like and yeah i think you gotta think uh barry's just like you gotta be kidding me right now like i yeah, just dude, you can
0: barely stand up you're so afraid I'm like, like just, just take just the out saved i saved you.
1: your life and now you're gonna try to shoot me again <laughs> um but so we go to uh jump, we keep jumping around here but like let's backtrack a little bit with his narration here. Cause this is the, the one narration that's interesting because like, it's not through a character in the movie. Mm-hmm. And I think in the book it's Barry, Barry's the one that narrates it. But now, oh, you, kind of, now you kind of have this like God-like narrator who's in mm-hmm. very much like a novel is like telling you stuff that you'll, you're never going to see. Like it makes, it actually comments on Barry's death, which you don't see in the movie when he's just mm-hmm. like, yes, he will, die one day alone and penniless uh the opposite of what he is right now or whatever and you're like oh how are we gonna get there and then you kind of see the how he begins to lose everything what's one of your favorite because it's a big movie what's one of your favorite sections of this movie we've talked about the duel um, i really
0: like when he's in austria uh-huh. and he and he uh meets up with the the what's his name the the
1: the gambler is what The it is. fake Frenchman, yes. Yeah. Uh, who is also uh, a disgraced Irishman. Yeah, man. Xavier or whatever. And they, and they
0: kind of throw in together, I think is such a fun. And that's the, the guy, that's the actor who played the writer in um, Clockwork Orange. Um,
1: yes. You're right, it is. Patrick McGee.
0: Yeah. The, you'll, that, that.
1: If you start watching this, you'll start seeing a lot of reoccurring characters in this, or, or mm-hmm. actors in these movies. Um, One big one is, oh God, what's the dude's name? he's in he's oh yeah philip stone so philip stone is alex's father in a clockwork orange he is graham who's kind of like i guess one of lord bullingdon's guy he's the one that basically kicks barry lynn out at the end of the movie he's just like yeah mm. he wants you guys to leave and he'll keep paying you but he's also uh delbert grady in the shining who's in the scene, oh, uh, yeah. the the red the red bathroom or whatever so he was in three of his movies uh but he's he's in this one as well um but yeah i love the kind of like the gambling through like city to city type thing and the mm. kind of play they have of like how they can like give each other signals any other scenes anything you want to say about barry linden
0: no just you know they they do another that's that's probably one of the best examples like we were saying of him kind of using the same there's there's a lot of classical score involved yeah. but he's got um a handle song uh specifically the um it's the sarah band Mm -hmm. but the the one that it's like dun 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 and they just hit it over and over again and they'll change it like that's that's this is where he's really getting into like like he he'll have it kind of modified to Mm -hmm. fit the part of the story where it's at but um but he uses it so effectively that's the the sequence with as you were saying the 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 son and, and his horse yeah the the narrator says something about like and here are the circumstances in which barry found himself penniless and without a son or something uh-huh. and leading into that sequence and the the score just starts there and that song uh just continues through that entire sequence mm-hmm. like does not stop from the narrator telling you that his son is going to die through all the circumstances yeah. leading up to the son dying. um it's it's really really effective but yeah it's it's it it's, it's when he when he keeps using the song over and over mm-hmm. again like that sometimes he can use it for a comedic beat, which I mean there yeah. are you know, as 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 long and kind of meandering as this movie is, there yeah. are a lot of comedic beats. But yeah. um, you know, sometimes he can use it to raise tension. It's it's just kind of wild when you do kind of keep repeating that song over and over again, the meanings it can take on. Mm-hmm. And and we'll definitely see that again in um in Eyes Wide Shut for sure.
1: Yeah. And I think you'll see a little bit too. And it made I me mean, a lot of the movies that we're gonna see uh next week. Um mm-hmm. but yeah when it comes to making this movie this is kind of where we we said well, like, this is where like this is where I found out that like Kubrick was very detailed or this is where Kubrick found out with this. But Barry Lyndon's where like they find out how much perfect perfectionist Stanley Kubrick is. Mm-hmm. So principal photography for Barry Lyndon. Can you guess how long it lasts? I'm supposed to see if you can guess, guess days.
0: Oh, God. Okay. Uh,
1: 300.
0: 300 shoot days? 300 shoot days. Oh my god. Spring
1: nineteen seventy three. Well I don't know about shoot days, but it's like it's three I think maybe just calendar days. Oh, okay. it, spring nineteen seventy three to early nineteen seventy four with a break at Christmas. Uh Wow. Apparently, one reason why I had to shoot a lot of it in Ireland, uh there's a rumor that Kubrick was on the IRA hit list. For directing a movie with uh, featuring English soldiers in Ireland, I'm sorry, it moved from <laughs> Ireland to England. This was after a certain point. After a certain point, they moved from Ireland to England because he was directing a movie with English soldiers in Ireland. Um, but for most part, they shot in Ireland because of the the architecture that was still available in Ireland. So a lot of the places they're at were still were still there. He uh, would use his production designer Ken Adam, who was the production designer on. Uh, Dr. Strangelove again, and they'll be very particular about what they kind of designed for this movie. Also to another name to mention in terms of his collaborators, uh, he used John, John uh, Alcott as a cinematographer, John Alcott had actually started as a, as a replacement on 2001 space odyssey after the DP had left at one point, (laughs) John Alcott would shoot 2001 and he would actually be Kubrick's more, most consistent collaborator in terms of cinematography because he would shoot parts, 2001 he would shoot Clockwork Orange, he would shoot Barry Lyndon, and I believe he would shoot The Shining as well. Um, and the only reason he probably wouldn't shoot more is he passed away in 1986. Yeah, very hectic shoot. It's also, this is where he became known for doing the uh, ungodly amount of takes that he would do. Um, mm-hmm. So apparently, he would shoot usually 20 to 50 takes per scene. Um, it's been claimed that Kubrick shot over 100 takes of the scene in which Barry first meets Lady Lyndon. Ultimately, uh, O'Neill became so, uh, exasperated with said practice that he faced Kubrick at one point and said, all right, I'll tell you what we'll do. You act out my part in this scene and then I'll imitate you.
0: Um, (laughs) Kubrick, exactly what you're not supposed to do when directing.
1: Kubrick reckoned that O'Neill was merely being insolent is what it was. um, and then one big thing they did is talk about the kind of the cameras in this movie uh, to get very technical. But they um, essentially used lenses for cinematography that were supposed to be used by NASA. Uh, that was to, to shoot like uh, the Apollo moon landing and kind of just like essentially things in space. They would use to shoot specific scenes, specifically when there was candlelit scenes, because they wanted to use, for the most part, all natural lighting. So the candles they used would have like three wicks on each candle. So it was like way brighter than what it should be. And they would shoot it with these, these uh, very fast lenses, as it said, as it's called, um, they developed through NASA and they actually had to kind of develop the technology or the lenses to kind of do this, uh, movie going back to the AR, the IRA thing. It was Kubrick received, received a call one day saying he had 24 hours to leave the country um, because of him possibly being on the IRA hit list is what it was. Um, they thought it might have been a hoax, uh, but he got the hell out of there within 12 hours, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I um
0: think. don't challenge that, yeah. yeah.
1: And I think they were filming a certain part uh it had to be canceled due to like 14 bomb threats that were made on the production. Jeez. Out of all the movies, okay, out of all the movies that Kubrick has made <laughs>
0: This is, the least, this is offensive. the least
1: offensive one. And in terms of like what I think would get like that would cause like violent outrage. But also I wasn't around the seventies to know what the England and, and Ireland. uh, um,
0: Yeah. Yeah. Relationship was I mean, like ult- at that point. Ult- ultimately it, I think it, it doesn't come out as pro Irish or English in no. any way, but, but you can I, that, understand yeah. if, if in, in that time you, you get word that they're shooting a movie about the english army you know they're, they're staging these big scenes with the english army you're yeah. like nah i'm not having
1: it i'm not i'm not doing that <laughs> also I, ta- I mentioned leon vitale who is plays lord bullington uh yeah. in this movie leon would later be stanley's assistant um for the rest of his career still does stuff actually for kubrick's estate in his film filmography uh he acted for kubrick and. uh And Barry Lyndon, and talk about him. I remember because I've met him several times at the video store, and I asked him about Barry Lyndon, of how he, how he, how it was. And he goes, When we got the script for Barry Lyndon, basically the script said like exterior Irish field. And then when you looked at the scene, it goes, (laughs) TBD. And then he's like, And then when you kept reading, every scene had to be determined under the under the headline. So basically, he literally was just kind of like making it up as he as he went along. Um and so when the movie was released, it was also a mixed reception if you couldn't have guessed. Um <laughs> many people, some people would say it was like boring and tedious. Many people compare, compared it to it's a it's a movie you put on your bookshelf
0: <laughs>
1: saying it's a good coffee table book essentially. Uh, Yeah, it was L.A. Times, the motion picture equivalent of one of those very large, very heavy, very expensive, very elegant, and very dull books that exist solely to be seen on coffee tables. Uh, Ebert would give it three and a half out of four stars, uh, saying it's almost aggressive in its cool detachment. It defies us to care. It forces us to remain detached about stately elegance. This this must be one of the most beautiful films ever made. Um, So, yeah, very mixed. Um, It would gross... Um, thirty-one point five million dollars at the box office against eleven million dollar budget. Okay, um, it was not the commercial success they hoped for. Um, but it's, I don't
0: see anyone ever thinking this would be a commercial success. It's got but, Ryan yeah.
1: O'Neill though, guys. <laughs> um, but it only made nine million dollars in the U.S. Did better overseas, specifically in Europe. Um, but as time has gone on, the movie has been reevaluated with many people saying it's again, some people think it's one of his best I think Scorsese said it was his favorite Kubrick movie, surprisingly Um, Ebert even gave it a higher rating upon rewatch and that's so going off that, because I heard Kubrick talk about this, because I think it was a lot based on like Pauline Kale's reviews he made a comment talking about how like I don't understand a critic because how can you analyze and judge a movie just on one viewing so you can tell he's not too fond of critics in this period in his career. Um, mm-hmm. but it shows he's somewhat right because essentially this movie, after multiple rewatches, people begin to realize just how kind of complex the character of Barry Lyndon in Barry Linden is and not just the technical side of the movie. Yeah. Um, but yeah and it's also now called or in 2020. The Irish Times named it the greatest Irish film of all time. Well, look at that. Look at the turnaround there. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The film would be nominated for seven Oscars. It would win for best scoring or best original song score. Oh, God. the, the, The musical score categories were very odd. So it won for best scoring, original song score, and adaptation or scoring adaptation very weird title for a musical score <laughs> best cinematography best costume design and best art direction it'd be nominated for best director best screenplay and best picture let's see who it lost against who it lost to one flew of the cuckoo's nest you want to talk about a great year in film okay i'm gonna lead you these read you these nominees real quick one Flew of the cuckoo's nest barry linden dog day afternoon jaws and nashville
0: yeah it's a hell of a year that's
1: a hell of a year um. Yeah. So it, it's now being reappraised, and some I said some calling it's one of his best works, or it's at least kind of the more, like the lesser known masterpiece. Some might say. Yeah. Of Kubrick's, absolutely. Of Kubrick's career.
0: I've, I've spoken with plenty of people who like love Kubrick could go off on so many of their movies, and I'm like, oh, and Barry Lyndon. They're like, what? <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's usually like some
0: people that don't even know it exists. I think it's
1: one of the last ones people come to in that and in, in this period. In this period, I think it's the last one they come to. Because I think
0: Mm -hmm.
1: when looking at what to attach to, it's like you talked about in the first episode about like there's no really good like entry point for Kubrick. Mm -hmm. And I think Barry Lyndon's like the worst entry point for anyone who's doing (laughs) Stanley Kubrick. It's like if you're young, you weirdly might gravitate towards a Clockwork Orange, sadly for some people. It's like it might be like you like this ultra-violent world, dystopian, futuristic world um or it could be the shining or it's or it's like the comedy satirical nature, it could be dr strange love or if you love the science and the kind of wonder it's 2001 but barry Lyndon's just kind of like it has that pauline kale approach of like do i really want to watch a three-hour art show mm-hmm. but it's way more than that is the thing um anything else you want to say thomas on these three movies what what are think, we seeing? What are we seeing at this period of time with his influence? With this period, what are we like? How is it building? I guess compared to the past two, like where is he at right now?
0: He he's getting his his style back, although it's a very different style. He's still got that kind of motion he was so obsessed with when he first got into moving pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, which I mean, obviously, you know, he's someone he's a photographer, and then he's getting into film he wants that is the difference is the camera can move now yeah. and so he's so obsessed with that in his first couple of movies and now i think after he kind of goes off and does his hollywood studio film kind of loses any form of style whatsoever and now he's coming back and he's exploring the frame composition yeah. and letting things sit and and now we're when we're going to start to see him kind of blend the two together and like you said it he he does still bring in that kind of jarring like handheld work. And, and then obviously next week we'll see some, a, a new form of, of new handheld form. filmmaking. Yeah. Um, but then we're also really starting to see that, that classical music influence come in and kind of using uh, uh, needle drops, but classical music needle drops. Yeah, <laughs> And, um, and, and yeah, you're, I think now we're really in the Kubrickian era where he's just, He's just making what he wants to make and and none none of it is like we say user friendly he's he's not concerned about the audience in any of this he's he's just kind of making his vision and and you like it or you don't like it
1: yeah, and I think too, looking at this period again looking at kind of Pauline kale kind of commenting on this stuff and other critics, it's like he's he talking about how he's kind of like the big and in, like influential guy for the new Hollywood movement in some way he's that transitional person between old to new and Mm. like because of that i feel like because he's seen his kind of a little bit older voice because he got started that way everything Mm. feels like mixed in some way it's like if someone did clockwork orange and it was their debut i think it would have been looked at a little bit differently yeah same with 2001 or something like but i think because he had already been known i think people were just questioning what these things were by this older and in some cases, like because I think he's 40 by the time he's doing 2001 or something. So he's 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 up there in terms of Hollywood years at that point in time. Um, but yeah, he's gaining more freedom essentially in this era. I think post Strange Love, all these movies are successes either financially or awards wise. Mm-hmm. Um, not always critically, but fin- it's like clockwork's a big hit. 2001s of being a big hit um barry Lyndon is a is a a minor hit just not as successful as they hoped um like it's allowing him to have freedom to do those things you're talking about to do uh the more meticulous directing that he's be- he's becoming known for at this moment in time um mm-hmm. he's allowed to spend time and do an 1840 adapt to 1844 novel uh that's like just not really much of a through line essentially it's just following a character um, or he's doing mm-hmm. this ultra violent youth culture movie essentially like he's being given a lot of leeway because I think at this point studios are going to realize what they get with a Kubrick movie is right. the thing yeah. they get there's an audience there they don't know how to relate to that audience really yet but somehow they know what Kubrick does is the thing. And so next week, it's going to be the final episode of our Stanley Kubrick month. Uh, We're talking about The Shining, Full Metal Jacket, and Eyes Wide Shut. We've discussed Eyes Wide Shut before. We're going to go back through it a little bit. Um, But you can always go back and listen to that episode as well if you want to. But yeah, that's all we have for this episode. If you have any questions for me or Thomas, again, email us. Send us your questions, comments, kind words. Uh, Also, if you're a new listener or a fan of the show and for some reason you haven't subscribed to us... Be sure to do so so you can stay updated on all of our new episodes. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever your podcast. And if you haven't already, be sure to write us a review on your preferred podcast platform.
0: You know, the, the monolith, they say it appears to people at moments of, of great human discovery. and And the monolith is here today to tell you that you can go on your favorite podcast platform and you can leave a review. And you can tell people <laughs> that you like this podcast, and then word will get out, yeah. and more people will listen to the podcast.
1: Yes, brothers and sisters, please, <laughs> please write a review. Five stars would be great too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and finally, don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: And thank you all for listening. Hope you listen to our episodes soon. Bye.